Well, now we come to our sermon passage this morning, so would you please stand as you're able for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 6. Pastor Moody will be preaching on the breastplate of righteousness, very specifically, but I'll read the whole context just to to put it in front of us. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, thank you very much, uh, Josh, and let's uh, uh, keep our Bibles open. We're looking Ephesians chapter 6, and particularly in verse 14, as we come to the breastplate of, uh, of righteousness. And I did also want to just thank Jim Tebby for um, being, um, teaching that uh, All Nations class, and also uh, Dr. Doug Moo as he um, begins uh, teaching as well a, uh, a new class for us, uh, also at the 9, 9.30 hour. Well, let's uh, bow our heads in prayer as we come now to God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we do pray that you'd help us to hear what it is that you have to say to us. Lord, as we come to your Word, we never come uh, simply uh, to increase our um, intellectual knowledge. We, we certainly do want to learn more. But Father, we also want to be transformed and so we pray, Lord, that your word would be, as uh, this passage says that it is, the sword of the Spirit. And uh, we pray uh, these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So, friends, we're looking at this uh, particular part of the armor of God in our series on, on, on the armor of God, on spiritual warfare. So let me just underline for us where we are. It's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. Uh, let me read it out for us so we focus in, uh, in, in the right place where we are. So Ephesians 6, verse 14, Paul writes, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So we're looking at the breastplate of righteousness. Let me uh, just give us a bit of context 
And so that we, as we're always trying to do in this series, make sure that as we study the book of Ephesians, we're clearly studying it as it is meant to be heard. This is so important today. We thought about this last week when we're looking at truth. We need to be a church that clearly understands what the Bible says as the author intends for it to be said. And so we need to put this in context. And as we've seen, Paul, in the letter to Ephesians, uh, the book has a message that is structured around uh, the dividing parts of uh, the book. So the first uh, three chapters are all about what Jesus has done. And then from chapter 4 onwards, it's a call for us to live in a certain kind of way. So chapter 4, in light of what Jesus has done. So chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, in light of what I've been teaching about what Christ has done, now I'm going to teach you what you should do. And that's the basic structure of the book. And it's important to remember that because when we come to the armor of God, uh, Paul is using the metaphor of this armor to teach us to put on the truth of what Christ has done and to live a certain way in light of that through the metaphor of this, this armor that we're to put on, and in particular this morning, the breastplate of righteousness, of course. So there's that theme in the book of Ephesians, but also this this theme of the new creation. We've seen that too, haven't we? So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared that we should walk in them. So what we have done, what he has done, therefore what we should do, and then this theme of the new creation that he picks up in chapter 2, verse 15, when he says that he, that is God, might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So the new creation isn't just us individually, it's us as a church, us as a new society, where the old warring factions between different races, between different classes, is broken down in Christ, and he creates this one new society of the church. Well, that's what he has done D-O-N-E, but therefore the things we need to do to live up to that. And so chapter 4, verse 24, he says, put on the new self created, this theme of the new creation, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and wholeness. And that verse is going to be important for us as we look at the breastplate of righteousness, and I'll return to it in a moment. But there's this theme of the new creation. Additionally, as we saw last week, uh, there is a false teaching that is prevalent in the Lycus Valley, to which the book of Ephesians was a circular letter addressing some of the false teaching that is brought up in uh, the letter to the Colossians. And that will be particularly important when we think of what this breastplate of righteousness is Uh, in its original meaning, and then how it applies for us today. So that's all just giving us a little bit of context so we understand what Paul is saying when he particularly talks about the breastplate of righteousness. But the question, of course, is why should we think about this today? What is its relevance to us today? And my answer to that question is that this issue of righteousness, this issue of character, this issue of morality, this issue of ethics, this issue of what is right and what is wrong could not be more significant 
and more relevant today. It is in many ways the big issue for America as a country and for the evangelical church as a church, capital C Church, today. How do we know what is truly right and what is truly wrong? How should we treat those who break those uh, laws and commandments? It is a huge crisis of character, and I'm not overstating it when I say crisis of character that is facing secular society as well as the church. And if you think I'm overstating it, let me just give you a couple of illustrations of that to show you the significance of what we're looking at today. So first of all, in secular society, uh, two recent articles have come out in secular world evidencing the crisis of character that we're facing. One is from a magazine called The Atlantic. And in this magazine, there's a new article that addresses neo-Puritanism, as it's called. That is, in its view, there's a judgmentalism in secular society where if you break a certain rule, if you say something wrong in the court of public opinion, no longer is it innocent until proven guilty. You make one mistake and you're out, you're cancelled, And the Atlantic is talking about how this crisis of character, how we judge what is truly right and what is truly wrong, has produced a kind of secular, non-religious, but neo-Puritanism. Of course, it uses Puritanism in a pejorative term. I don't really like how it uses Puritanism because, in truth, the Puritans at their best were not particularly legalistic. Uh, My... uh, my father likes to tell me, remind me every now and then, that, um, that it was actually a Puritan who invented bottled beer. So that's not particularly legalistic. But nonetheless, I get what this article in The Atlantic is saying. What it's saying is I prefer to call it a neo-Pharisaism, secular, new kind of Pharisaism, where we're constantly judging and dismissing and cancelling people who say something wrong, who don't agree with our particular kind of political correctness. And of course, social media is massively amplifying that issue. So one um, scholar called Tamar Gendler from Yale University says this. He says, uh, we used to think that in the future, everyone would be famous for 15 minutes, but actually now we're in the future. The truth is everyone is damned in 15 seconds. You say the wrong thing and you're out. You're done. And there are people's lives who are being destroyed through this sort of thought police that's all over the place. And secular society is beginning to spot it. I think the religious, the Christians, have noticed it for a while, but is actually coming, being spotted in secular society. Robert Genge, who is a Princeton professor, uh, he says, I think this is fascinating, he says he never thought that he would live to see the day when the liberal idea of a free society where there could be free speech and a free exchange of ideas would be come to be seen as archaic as the old conservative idea. That's an astonishing thing for a liberal, uh, ethically, morally, uh, philosophically professor to say. In other words, what's happened is right within this, the liberal ideology, the anti-Christian liberal ideology, there has been birthed a new kind of sort of secular 
Pharisaism, a kind of secular legalism, a sort of judging and dismissing anyone who doesn't agree. It's born, nature abhors a vacuum. And when you remove ideology from it and say it's just a free for all, some new kind of ideology will come in. And the new kind of ideology to come in is a sort of neo secular Phariseeism where everyone is judging each other. It is everywhere. Uh, one other example of this is from uh, The Economist, again a secular example, that says a survey was done of uh, 4,000 college students by the Knight Foundation, and this survey found in 2019 that 68% of college students felt that it was impossible to say something that might potentially offend another college student. In other words, we are judged now not by the rightness or wrongness of our statements, but by the emotional impact that has on the other person. Uh, another survey has come out from the Pew Research Center that says that 40% of millennials actually, therefore, I think in result of uh, this, uh, this sense that you can't say something that might offend someone, 40% of millennials are actually saying that speech that might be deemed offensive should be suppressed. Should be suppressed. We are living in a kind of secular neo-Pharisaism where if you say the wrong thing, you, you're out. And there are all sorts of examples of people's careers who have been uh, simply ruined through it and cancelled. The, the, the Thought Police even went after J.K. Rowling. I don't know whether you, you spotted the, the, the author of Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling. They went after her to try and cancel her because she had opinions about gender that were viewed as in, unacceptable. J.K. Rowling, who is one of the biggest international figures, authors in the last 50 years or so, was almost cancelled because of it. But she managed to survive, I suppose, because... Probably her books sell pretty well, so it's pretty hard to cancel her. But if they went after J.K. Rowling and almost succeeded, what about the rest of us? But the same is happening actually in the religious world. If you've been following uh, the evangelical news in the last 10, well, not even 10 years, last three or four years, you'll know that there has been scandal after scandal that has hit evangelicalism, the Christian church, and so there's a crisis of character in that regard, but there's also a crisis of character in the way it has been trumpeted and treated throughout the conversation. There are podcasts that are hugely popular about it. There, there are journalists who are making their whole living out of finding whatever the latest scandal might be. You're getting a kind of reflection of the same kind of neo-Phariseeism And I'm not going to talk about all the different scandals that are out there because I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, one of my principles for this sort of stuff is um, David, King David, when he talked about the uh, death of uh, King Saul, who of course had done all sorts of things he should not have done, he lamented that death and he said, tell it not in Gath, G-A-T-H, Gath, that is where the Philistines were, that is, don't Speak about it in such a way that it will cause a scandal for those who might otherwise believe in God. And so there's an appropriateness lament when someone falls within Christian circles that doesn't create more waves and more problems. But at any rate, there's a similar kind of crisis 
of character even within the religious world as well. So what are we going to do about that? Well, we need to look as we get into the spiritual warfare, we need to look at this breastplate of righteousness. What is the breastplate of righteousness? Let me summarize it for you in a sentence, and then I'll explain it. Here's the sentence. The breastplate of righteousness is a bravery, because it's a breastplate and it's warfare, is a bravery and a righteous confidence that counteracts false judgmental legalism and immorality and is attained through putting on the true biblical righteousness. So let me walk you through that. That's a a sentence that seems long. I'll repeat it again towards the end, but let me walk you through it. When he talks about the breastplate of righteousness, there are two simple parts to it. First is breastplate, of course. Second is righteousness. So what does he mean by breastplate, first of all? The breastplate in the ancient world cover both the front and the back of the, uh, of the, uh, of the central region of the body. And um, so uh, John Bunyan when he was talking about this, used to say that it just covered the front of the body and therefore it was a call for the Christian soldier to always advance and never turn his back. And that's good rhetorical preaching, but it's not great exegesis because actually the ancient breastplate covered both the front and back. So it covered both the front and back and it went from the neck uh, all the way down to the, uh, the upper thigh region. So it covered all the sensitive parts of the body, the heart, the lungs, the liver, etc. And so physically, it was protecting the core part of the body, your core. Metaphorically, it's protecting the core part of your personhood, who you are, your identity, your heart, Uh, what you think, what you feel, what you decide. It's protecting your core identity. And of course, identity in all this uh, issue of crisis of culture is the central issue. So that's what the breastplate is. What about this righteousness? What is that? Well, there have been different opinions about what Paul means by righteousness here. Part of the challenge is that in context, he only actually uses the specific word righteousness one other time in the letter, and so it makes it difficult to interpret what he means by righteousness in this context. William Gurnall, who wrote that book, A Christian in Complete Armor, Uh, would say that by righteousness, Paul means only what he called imparted righteousness. That means, by contrast to imputed righteousness, what Christ has done for us on the cross, his righteousness. William Gurnall said he does not mean that. He means only imparted righteousness. That is what we do in practical uh, living and ethical decisions in our own daily lives. Others have disagreed. Uh, John Stotts, the, the, the British Bible teacher, would say it was both imparted as well as imputed. Um, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said it was both in the sense that it was imputed and therefore imparted. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce said it was both. And, and so what do I think? What I think is, yes, it is both. So it is both. Remember the structure of the letter to Ephesians, what Christ has done, therefore what we are to do. So both those are in this teaching about righteousness, but in particular, it is a contrast to a false kind of teaching about 
how you can be moral, how you can have character, what is true righteousness. And you can see this by the one other time in the whole letter he talks explicitly about righteousness. So chapter 4, verse 24, he puts it like this. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and wholeness. Or uh, the word true there modifies both righteousness and wholeness. So we could put it like this in the original, in righteousness and wholeness of truth. In other words, the true kind of righteousness and wholeness, the true kind of character, the true kind of ethics, the true way of actually living in a holy and good fashion and mode of, uh, of daily uh, action and thought, the true kind of righteousness. And all this is to contrast the false teaching that was then prevalent in this Lycus Valley. Remember the letter to the Ephesians was probably a circular letter that went to the church at Ephesus, but also the church in Colossae, where there was false teaching about a kind of mystical legalism, which said, do not taste, do not touch, and if you do, you'll be judged for the wrong day, doing the wrong thing at the wrong time, a kind of mystical legalism. And Paul's saying, no, that's the wrong kind of righteousness. The right kind is through what Christ and what he has done. He himself is the image of the invisible God in him and through him all things are made for his glory. He is the one who holds everything together. He's the one. Focus on him. Dismiss this false kind of neo, in our terms now we're bringing into application, neo-Pharisaism that's not truly righteous. There is a true kind of righteousness and you should put that on. And he's contrasting it to the false teaching that was prevalent in this valley at the time, the Lycus Valley, and by application we can contrast it to the false teaching, uh, false teaching about righteousness today. So how do we contrast it to these to these false ideas of uh, what is right, uh, this crisis of, of character, the mystical legalism of his day, and the new kind of Pharisaic legalism that is both prevalent in secular society and also, frankly, in religious society. There's a sort of neo-fundamentalistic legalism that is judging people and dismissing people for making one little mistake. How do, and yet, at the same time, we need to be moral and righteous. So how do we put on the breastplate of righteousness. Well, we need to be clear about what the Bible teaches about righteousness. And first of all, there is a kind of legal righteousness. And that kind of legal righteousness is, needs to be uh, pervasive and persistent. If you break God's law at one point, you've broken the whole thing. So in this kind of righteousness... Paul says, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one. That idea is gone in secular society because the church has not preached, we're all sinners, because we haven't wanted to use the word sin. Because secular society has rejected the view of God as existing, and certainly God as holy, the inevitable result is we think we're all kind of good and right, and then when someone does something wrong, we think, well, I would never do that. I'm righteous, they're not, and we dismiss them, we cancel them, we remove them, we judge them. 
But the Bible's teaching is there is no one, this legal righteousness, there is no unrighteous, not even one. And that doesn't mean that every sin is equivalent to every other sin. Of course, there are some sins that are far more heinous, far more egregious than other sins. Of course, it doesn't mean that some sins aren't more dangerous for you than other kinds of sins. Of course. But what it does mean is there's no unrighteous, not even one. And what that means as a church is we need to be a place where there is no shame. That you can come in here having broken God's law and be welcome. Why? Because you are coming to a place where there is no unrighteous, not even one. We are all lawbreakers, we are all sinners. We're all in need of Christ. And that whole idea where there's a a level playing field at the foot of the cross needs desperately to be rediscovered today, to put on the breastplate of righteousness. I like the story of of the woman who came up to the preacher after the, after the service, and she said to the preacher, you know, preacher, you were, you were talking about sin and sinning and all this kind of thing. You know what? I haven't sinned for 10 years, to which the preacher wisely said, you must be very proud about that, to which he replied, yes, I am actually. There is no one righteous, not even one, this legal kind of righteousness, putting on that true teaching, but then there are two other parts of this righteousness, imputed and imparted. The imputed righteousness is what Paul talks about in other terminology, but basically the same idea. Early in the letter, Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 9, he says this, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, it is God's doing, it is what Christ has done, it is reckoned to you. Imputed righteousness, the reckoning of Christ's righteousness, is not a fake fiction. No, in biblical understanding, we are united in Christ And therefore, when God declares us righteous through our faith in Him, He is declaring what is real in us, for it is Christ who is righteous, and we are in Him. It is His righteousness, and we hide ourselves in Him. We're in Him. We are united to Him. And so, in theological terms, the justification is always connected to our union with uh, Christ. So, there's imputed righteousness but then also imparted righteousness, what we must do in light of what Christ has done. And whereas imputed righteousness is immediate and instantaneous, imparted righteousness is gradual and lifelong and takes time. We gradually, in the power of Christ, become more like Him. So while as a church, we need to be a place where there's no shame, we also need to be a church where we are constantly calling ourselves forward towards increasing holiness and righteousness, becoming more like Him. We're a school of Christ as we're entering into more godliness, more love, more peace, more joy, as we gradually become more and more like what Jesus wants for us. 
So this is the breastplate of righteousness. And why breastplate? Why covering the core? Because it gives us the confidence we need. Proverbs 28 verse 1 puts it like this. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Or 1 John 3, 21 says this, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. It is this biblical understanding of righteousness. Yeah, there's no one who's righteous yet, but God gives us His righteousness through faith in Christ, and therefore, I'm gradually becoming more righteous. And when you have that put on as a breastplate, covering what you think, what you feel, what you decide, who you are as a person, then you're confident. Then you're able to stand up for Jesus. Then you're able to live for Him with bravery, and it counteracts this kind of false teaching and false ideas about identity that are so prevalent today, both in secular society and in the church at large. It was Arthur Conan Doyle, Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of um, the the Sherlock Holmes series, of course, who loved to... um, play um, practical jokes, Arthur Conan Doyle once, it is said, wrote a letter to a well-known member of the British Parliament and who was known for his supposed morality of a kind of Pharisaic kind, and he wrote uh, 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 to this man a letter that said simply, all is discovered, flee at once. And the man, it is said, ran out of the Parliament very very quickly. So we need the right understanding of righteousness. No one's righteous. We're all sinners. God declares us righteous in Him, and therefore, if that is real, if we truly have that righteousness, we gradually become more like Jesus through the power of His Spirit. We're all on a journey to become more holy. We help each other. We don't cancel each other. We come alongside each other. Yeah, there can be discipline and correction and all the rest, but it's all for the aim of increasing Christ's likeness in the family of God. So again, in summary, bravery and a righteous confidence counteracts false judgmental legalism and immorality through putting on the true biblical teaching about righteousness. Well, your question is how? How can we do that? Let me just give you three simple words to teach you how, or perhaps remind you how. First, seed. Do you have the seed of God's Word in your life? Do you have real spiritual life? Have you received the message of the gospel? There is no point in trying to be righteous if you don't start with real spiritual life. Receive Him today His death on the cross for you, His blood for you, the resurrection power by His Spirit that comes in through faith. Receive that seed of the gospel today as the first step. So seed, and then I've got in my notes here weed, which I feel slightly hesitant saying because weed today has a different kind of meaning, but you know what, in this context, let's put it in a religious context rather than in a a pot smoking context, but... uh, Weed, as in, get, if you have the seed in the soil, 
And then what happens is weeds grow up around it, and they begin to strangle and, and throttle the vitality of the seed. Uh, lust or um, envy, jealousy, selfish ambition, all these things. And so to increase in imparted righteousness, we need to be active in digging out the weeds that grow up. And Paul talks about this a lot in Colossians chapter 3. If you want to read it at home, he uses two images for that. That is putting to death and putting away. In other words, we've got to dig out the weeds through prayer, through conversation with other godly people, through confession of our sin before Christ most of all. We've got to weed out the things that will stifle the seed of the word, materialism, uh, a love of money, weed that stuff out, and then we have to feed the word, feed it through God's word, through uh, prayer, through the community, and most of all, uh, not, not most of all, but um, pastorally significantly, that one friend who will actually tell you and you will actually listen to, to correct you and point you in the right way. Bravery and a righteous confidence counteract false judgmental legalism, this neo-Pharisaism, whether of a secular or religious kind, through putting on the true biblical teaching about righteousness. Let me leave you with uh, William Gurnall, who said this, and you remember this was written a long time ago, uh, how relevant it is today. He said this, nothing can save the life of this, our nation. Uh, I think the same is true for us today. Nothing can save the life of this, our nation, or lengthen out its tranquility. That means its peace. All the tensions we experience today and division. Nothing can save the life of this, our nation, or lengthen out its tranquility, but the recovery of the much-decayed power of holiness. What an old-fashioned word. Holiness. This, he says, this putting on the breastplate of righteousness, this as a spring of new blood to a weak body would, though almost it dying, it would still revive it and produce many happy days, yea, more happy days to come than it has ever yet seen. The same is true today, only through putting on the breastplate of righteousness. And to our end, let's pray together. Our Lord God, we do pray that we would do that as individuals and as a church, to put on this, this righteousness as a breastplate, as part of our spiritual war today and this week. And we pray it in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen.